is The Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. I'm your host, Paul Parisi. And I'm Jacob Young. On The Edge of Innovation, we talk about the intersection between technology and business, what's going on in technology, and what's possible for business. I am. Yep. So just like our slogan says, we protect you from people like us. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We are. We are hackers in the very uh, real sense of the word. We have roughly 35 guys on the team right now that are all vulnerability researchers and zero-day exploit developers. So we really specialize in tearing apart technology, understanding how the technology works, and then finding ways to make the technology do things that it's not supposed to do. And we apply this skill set to anything from you know automobiles and cell phones all the way into large corporate networks or government networks and so on and so forth. The end product is we breach something, we hack something, we break something, and then we provide you with a solution to prevent other people like us from being able to do the same thing. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So a prime example, right? With cell phones, for example, when you receive a text message from somebody, you expect the text message to display the message. If you receive a text message from us, our text message, you might never actually see it come in because it'll be designed in such a way that rather than displaying a text message, it gives us complete control over your phone. So maybe when we send you a text message, the payload or the contents of the message will allow us to listen to your microphone, turn on your camera, track you via GPS, read the emails, look at what you're browsing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the way that we do that is by leveraging flaws that exist within that specific piece of technology. And the same would be for anything. You know, We did research on cars uh, a while ago you're in the news for the research there. And we found that it was possible to do things with the cars, like take control over critical systems, such as the accelerators, the braking systems, seatbelt tensioners, other kinds of security things in cars. And so you can literally hack a car and turn a car into a weapon. So we look for the different avenues that those kinds of things can be done. And then we build solutions so that the people who are responsible for making these technologies can prevent those kinds of things from happening, hopefully. Yeah. So when I was about eight years old, my father picked up a Tandy 1000. Uh, maybe I was even six. I was young. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to know how this computer worked. And I played Load Runner. I, you know, I played the word processor that he had, the big old disks you should have to stick in there. And uh, I, I became more and more curious. So I began picking up Basic, I think it was, and just trying to figure out how things worked in that respect. And then, you know, I saw, wow, if I put in this text without really understanding what it was, the computer would beep in this way or the computer would do this kind of thing. Uh, that evolved. And then I was gifted with modulator demodulator. <laughs> modem. Uh, and I thought, I thought to myself, so if I dial this telephone number, 
I get a connection. What happens if I try a bunch of different telephone numbers? And most of the time, it would be people that pick up and be mad that they're being called by a modem. But sometimes I'd be calling other modems and I'd find that I could connect to systems that I wasn't supposed to. And then from there, <laughs> I discovered the the real satisfaction, right? Curiosity. You know, hackers are driven by curiosity. And there's a there's a saying that I hear all the time, curiosity killed the cat and satisfaction brought him back. So kind of evolved from there. When I went to college, I was studying a combination of computer science and philosophy. I ended up dropping out of college in my second year because I was already working in the industry. I was making more money than most people with a degree. And I was learning stuff in school that I had already learned and that was fairly antiquated. And so I thought, well, I don't really need a degree, you know, to, to get me nothing. And so I dropped out of college, started my first business, sold that business, worked in the industry for a bit, which is how you and I met initially, I think. And then I started up my second business. And uh, here we are, sort of the interim, you know, the, the point between the two businesses. Uh, I realized that <laughs> I do not work well for other people. I work much better for myself and with my team. And so here we are. And it's, you know, it's been a great adventure, but it's been pretty successful too. Yeah. So back in 2006, uh, really 2005, 2006, right after we were running Snowsoft or Secure Network Operations was the full name, we were approached by a bank. And the bank said to us, hey, we're looking for a penetration testing firm that will deliver a real hack. We really want to get hacked. And we said, well, we don't really do this kind of stuff. My team is really into reverse engineering and zero-day exploitation and things like that right now. We're doing vulnerability research and exploit development. But we'll try to find a company. And so we scoured the internet. We looked and looked and looked. And we could not find a penetration testing firm that would actually do what they said they were going to do. And they all said that they would do manual testing. They all said that they would you know, use a research-based methodology. They all said they were going to do these incredible things. But when it came down to really talking about the technology, they were all going to effectively deliver a vulnerability scan, vet the results, and produce a report, which is not what our customer wanted, our friend or associate wanted. And so they said, well, why don't you guys deliver this test? And we said, all right, we'll give it a shot. And so we took our vulnerability research and exploit development methodologies. We created a methodology that was called real-time dynamic testing. And about 2006, we used that methodology to test this bank, and we managed to breach the bank and take the domain in four minutes flat. And the reason why we were successful in doing that was because they had a critical system it was exposed to the internet, but it was configured in a way that the traditional scanning technologies wouldn't detect it, right? I don't know if it was likely accidental, but the scanners didn't recognize the system. We began to look at the network and we said, hey, what is this glaring hole? Let's play with this. And boom, you know, we were right in. And so the bank said, wow, this is incredible. You know, not only did you take our domain in four minutes, but we didn't see you do it. And, you know, how did you do it? And we said, well, we just used real hacking methods, right? We, we didn't depend on scanners, and, and that was that. So they began talking about us. Other banks began calling us, pharmaceutical companies, and so on and so forth. And we just kept on testing and kept on evolving, and the methodologies continually evolved. And on the side, for the longest time, we were also doing the zero-day vulnerability research and zero-day exploit development, and we were catering to the zero-day market. So the business was running on two fronts. Um, today, it's strictly offensive. Today, we are strictly hacking people and breaching people um, using the same kinds of methodologies and the same kinds of threat as you would experience from nation states or from real world hackers. No. 
It really isn't. The most complicated part of breaching a network is doing the research up front to identify the points of weakness. Once you identify a point of weakness, it's generally pretty simple to exploit it. For example, if it's going to be a local file inclusion vulnerability in a web application, right? You have to be able to understand how, you know, how an application is constructed. You have to be able to understand how to you know, apply a path so that you can you can include a file from the local file system and just really where to paste or write a simple string. And that one simple string, you know, enables you to call a file. So a really simple example would be an ISP that we were working on back before cloud computing was a really big thing. These guys were kind of like your pre-cloud computing hosted environment. They had an infrastructure set up with a management interface. And the management interface had a a glaring local file inclusion vulnerability in it where you could see the path and you could see the file that was being called right in the URI. So what we ended up doing was we ended up generating a bunch of PHP-based error logs <laughs> by dumping PHP code directly to the server and that would get recorded the error log. And then we directed the, the path in the URL and the URI to the error log for Apache because we knew they're running Apache. When it loaded the error log, it interpreted the PHP and we got a shell on the system. So it's, it's pretty simple stuff. Yeah. 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 It's funny because even the most complex hacks become trivial once they're discovered. And so the, the real talent and the real art is in the discovery. And it's being able to think in such an obscure and different way. You know, that you, that you almost, it's not really outthinking other people, but you, for lack of a better term, you out-art <laughs> right? other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you have to build an entire ecosystem or environment for this thing to exist in to break it because certain pieces of software are meant to exist in certain situations. They're meant to do certain things. So put them in a different situation that's designed specifically to make it break, make it uncomfortable. Doing that, that's, that's really what hacking is all about. Always worried about keeping current with IT? Savior Labs is an IT and web services firm that cares for your business and team. Savior Labs solves problems so you can focus on what you do best. Prepare for 2018 with a free IT assessment. Just follow the link in our show notes and enter code SAVIOR, S-A-V-I-O-R. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So when we offer our services, there are three different levels, and the higher level includes the lowest two levels. So there's silver, gold, and platinum level packages that we offer. The silver level package is the industry standard package. It's what you're going to get from 90% of our competitors or 90%, 99% of the industry. And it's, it's really how many IP addresses do you have? I'm going to price based off of the number of IP addresses, right? So you say you have 10 IPs, 500 bucks per IP, $5,000. We don't price that way, but this is the, the competition. And then we're going to take the IP addresses that you give us. We're going to 
give them to a vulnerability scanner like Nexpose or Nessus, and then we're going to run the scan. The scan is going to find what it's going to find. We're going to pass the results of that off to a team of engineers. The engineers will exploit whatever is exploitable, and then they'll produce a report, right? That's sort of the entry-level penetration testing service. It's not ideal for several reasons. The first is when you price based off of the number of IP addresses, you're not actually pricing based off of workload. So suppose you have the 10 IPs, and they're all running complex web applications, but maybe 40 man hours per IP, $5,000. That's $12.50 an hour, roughly. <laughs> Nobody can work for $12.50 an hour, so you have to compensate with automation. The second reason why it's not ideal is automated vulnerability scanners only identify the low-hanging fruit, which kind of goes into the question that you were asking. Right, So they only identify the basic stuff that exists, maybe 30%, 45%, someplace in that range, depending on how it's configured, of the vulnerabilities that exist within the network. So if your methodology depends on automation, you're going to be leaving you know, a major gap. You're, you're going to be leaving a lot of exposure, which is part of the reason why businesses are, are suffering breaches left and right. So then you escalate up into the gold level of service. And the gold level of service will include that low-hanging fruit type thing, you know, the, the basic checks. But then we bring in real-time dynamic testing, which is the methodology that we use for doing research-based penetration testing. It incorporates major components of our uh, vulnerability research and exploit development practices. So uh, real-time dynamic testing you know, gets you closer to a 90 95% point of coverage as far as technology is concerned. We don't just use, and sometimes we don't even use vulnerability scanners, but we really depend on our own experience, expertise, hands-on digging, right? And so that's pretty coverage. You get the low-hanging fruit, the basic stuff. You get the really advanced stuff in there. And then you go for the platinum. Platinum is realistic threat. We will cover the gamut, social, physical, electronic, and there's no limit to what we'll do. We have zero-day malware that we use. It's called Radon. We have different variants of Radon. The social engineering practices that we use have been <laughs> written about in The Economist, Bloomberg, Forbes. We built a mouse that was fully weaponized that breached networks for us. I mean, all kinds of things. Yeah. So there's a very long-winded answer to a very simple question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's a test that's designed to identify the presence of points where something can make its way into or through something else. And then when applied to network security or applied to networking, it's the same kind of thing, but it's a test that's designed to identify the presence of vulnerabilities in an infrastructure that can be, you know, breached by an adversary. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. Well, yes. I mean, so we, we figure out how to get in and we do get in. We demonstrate by exploitation. So we demonstrate by proof. Yep. Or at will, I mean, if it's a physical point of entry, you know, with one of our treasuries, we literally walked into a data center and walked out with a computer. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah it was one of the state treasuries. Yeah, in other cases, we've turned on webcams and microphones and recorded entire conversations in businesses. And in one case, we actually took <laughs> took a video of a guy picking his nose, playing solitaire, and drinking coffee. <laughs> so, so we, we definitely. <laughs> Yeah. 
Yeah, there is no such thing as security when it comes down to corporate security or commercial security. There is just a market, and it's a self-perpetuating market. And that market really does provide, in many cases, a false sense of safety. When it comes down to how people should be using their computers, they should think very carefully about the kinds of data that they want to store in their own computers. And they should also think very carefully about what they put out into the cloud, you know, social media, anything like that. Because the moment that information is out there, it's no longer their information. It might be protected by contract, might be protected by privacy policies. But as we've seen with Equifax and as we've seen with Target and Sony, Hannaford, Home Depot, Ashley, Matt, you know, I could go on and on and on. The information is no longer their information. Right. And, and one of the things that has really surprised me about people is people think, well, Facebook is private. That's my Facebook page. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it really isn't. <laughs> if you're a private person, you shouldn't put it out there. So, yes, there's no control. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the big deal is profiling. One of the things that, that we do when we hack businesses is we, for, for the platinum level stuff, we socially engineer people. To socially engineer people, we have to be able to understand what they like, what kinds of pets they have, who they're married to, who their children are, what the last meal was they ate, anything like that, any of that information that might seem benign. That information can help us to build a false story around a false persona that meshes very well with them. And then that enables us to befriend them on Facebook or befriend them socially in the business. Once we befriended them, we can begin to build a trust relationship. And once that trust relationship reaches the point where I can send them content via email, you know, a document, or I can get them to click on a link, I can breach the network. So any information that they put out there is going to be useful for me to help leverage them or breach them, or maybe even just create a falsified story and extort them. I saw something really interesting recently. We have a friend here that's going through a divorce and she received a letter in the mail. And the letter was sent to her house, but it was addressed to her husband, her ex-husband, soon to be ex-husband. And I said, hey, you know, I have really dirty information on you and I'm not going to share it here because I don't want your wife to know what this is. But, uh, you know, I think this is worth some hush money effectively. And, uh, you know, if you give me $2,000 in Bitcoin, <laughs> I won't tell anybody about this kind of thing. Right. So the reason why they figured out this divorce is going on was because of information that was disclosed to the public. It's actually a fairly common scam. So so any information that you put out there is stuff that can be leveraged by people looking to extort you or breach systems. Or if we get hired, we'll use it to break into whatever networks you have. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, it, it would be. Don't trust anything on the internet is what I would say. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
So your abstinence doesn't necessarily protect you. You know, it, it'll it'll protect. Right, there isn't. There isn't. And that's exactly. That's that's what a lot of yeah, that's what a lot of people do. <laughs> they come full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's where this conversation always inevitably ends up here is, well, I won't use it. Well, even if you don't think you're going to use it, you're still using it. Your bank is online, period. You're living in this country and this country is, you know, its financial system uses these ridiculous things called credit scores. Your purchases, everything you do are online. You own a credit card, that's online. You own a cell phone, you're online. You don't have to have a social media presence. You're there. The only thing that you do with your social media presence is you feed the engine unnecessarily. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's really the, that's the best way to explain it. The Edge of Innovation is brought to you in partnership with Savior Labs. Savior Labs exists to help businesses mature and strategize for the future. Learn more about Savior Labs at SaviorLabs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. For the show notes and more information about Paul, please visit paulparisi.com. The Edge of Innovation is produced by Jacob Young in conjunction with copious amounts of coffee. Music on today's episode was from bensound.com. Paul can be found on Twitter at pdparisi and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash pdparisi. This episode, like all our episodes, is transcribed and available at paulparisi.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.